Enjoy local voices. Enjoy local opinions. All on one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast DC is the new local app with hundreds of DC area podcasts. Featuring some of the DC area's best personalities, pundits, and provocateurs. Earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts you love instantly. With new programs being added every week, don't hesitate. Download Podcast DC now for free. Available in the App Store or in Google Play. Podcast DC. Listen local. Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Well, hello, everyone. This is Brad Johnson, your host here at Corner Table Talk, welcoming you. New York City, my hometown, is on the comeback trail. Quarantines lifted, blue skies and warm temperatures. The vibrant streets of the city have sprung back to life. Restaurants, bars and clubs are welcoming back customers and breathing a huge sigh of relief that the worst of the horrors of COVID are safely in the rear view. If you're thinking of a trip to New York City, and why wouldn't you be, and wanting to know about some of the places you should visit, my guest today has some spots you should definitely put on your list. We're focusing on the comeback of New York City, or maybe in the words of LL Cool J, don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. I'm rocking my peers, putting suckers in fear. David Rabin is a name known to almost everyone in the New York hospitality industry. He is a former lawyer, former lawyer, and a graduate of Tufts undergrad in Columbia Law School to use a little basketball lingo. He has been putting up numbers since he and former business partner Will Regan opened the ultra cool Rex in 1990, one of the first to help establish the meatpacking district as a hot neighborhood for nightlife and high end retail doing for it what Sex in the City did for the Cosmopolitan. A string of places since, which included a club in Moscow. That's right, as in Russia. And I visited there with David. We'll talk a little bit about that. David recently added several new venues to his existing roster in Manhattan, while also continuing his longstanding relationship with the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas. In Soho, the ever-popular watering hole with a view and a pool. Jimmy at was what was formerly the James Hotel, now called Modern House, where he is also a partner in the new restaurant there, Veranda, which looks absolutely beautiful. There's American Bar and one of the hottest and most innovative concepts in the city, focusing on the cuisine of India, Sona. So we're going to talk about that, too. Uh, and by the way, Eater... New York listed both Veranda and Sona recently in the top 10 of the hottest places in the city. So David has that touch. He's also a partner at the uh, Midtown Power Spot, the Lambs Club. And I've never been there and not seen a mogul or two or three in that room. David is former president of the New York City Nightlife Association. I've known him since the 80s and am honored to count him among my closest friends. There is no one with better people skills, his ability to remember names, details, and his enthusiasm for connecting people, I think, are a big part of his secret sauce. And clearly, he is someone a lot of people want to be in business with. So David is a loving husband to his beautiful wife, Nikki, the proud dad of his handsome and smart son, Tyler, and a dog named Joey Mack, which caught me off guard because I did not know David Raven was a dog lover until I saw pictures of that little cuddly thing. Let's dive in with David Raven. David, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Did I Thank miss anything? Thank you so much, Brad. No, I think that was that was pretty good. Except that <laughs> I, I met Nikki. I, I met Nikki at the cellar. So that's a little history there. That's at, right. At that's your right. goodbye dinner for L.A. 
Wow. Oddly, oddly enough. I, so. I did not know that was the event. Well, I, I saw her there and then had to ask Chris Halliburton like 600 times if he'd introduce me, and he finally right. did. You know, I discovered Nikki, right? You do know that. What, what else? What, what, why would that surprise me, Brad? <laughs> I was walking to Memphis one day, a restaurant that we opened on Columbus Avenue, and Nikki was working in a clothing store at the front desk a couple of doors down. And I walked past and did a little moonwalk backwards, and I said, you should be at the front desk of our restaurant. And yeah, uh, so yeah. The rest is uh, is history, as they say. So anyway, we start off things, David, with uh, short order questions. So I'm going to fire a few at you. Get your, I'll do my get best. your response. I'll do my best. Okay. What is in heavy rotation on your playlist, Mr. Raven? Uh, you know, most of the places that we run, I like to say they're 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 based on Tribe Called Quest. Um and things that would flow from that either before or after. So, you know, a lot of Marvin Gaye, a lot of her, a lot of D'Angelo. Um, uh, you know, uh, I like a guy named Tom Mish a lot, uh, mm -hmm. UK dude. So those are sort of, I mean, four or five of the bass people, Al Green. I mean, our first car ride out in the Hamptons, those two songs never are not on my playlist. Uh, the Staple Singers and... Um, Shaka. And early Shaka, yeah. 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 Those are on, yeah. those are... Those are, to use a bad pun, those are staples of my, of my <laughs> playlist. And every time they come on, I honestly think back to your car and driving around and uh, that weekend that we spent out, out east. Yeah, that was a blast, man. And your places are, are known for, uh, for music, and I know you have a hand in that. Um, I know you're an avid tennis player. Who would you most like to spend a couple of hours with on the court? I would probably say I would love to meet Naomi Osaka. And, and I have met Serena once and was very impressed with her. And um, I'm constantly amazed by uh, Federer's grace under pressure. So, I mean, it's, they're very obvious answers, unfortunately. But, you know, those, you know, they just they seem to be people who are really, really thinking in addition to what they're, they're doing. And, um, and then the humbleness of Nadal, Nadal is crazy to me. I mean, the guy's won 13 French Opens, and he's he's constantly seen as the underdog, which is kind of bizarre to me. He's one of the greatest in history. And but seems yeah, to live a pretty simple, he does reclusive seem very, life. Very exactly. But it's been that's the only thing through the pandemic. I would say that you know the two nice things. If there's any three things that I can say through the pandemic were a lot of family time with Nikki and Ty, Joey Mack, as you as you uh, mentioned, and uh, who's named after our dad, my dad, and named after our our nephew who passed away, and um, and playing a lot of tennis. I, I, it was a comeback period. Good for you, David. What are you wearing on your feet these days? Ha, always sneakers, my man. I, always I know. Sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> I got some cool multicolored Pumas that I don't know where they came from, and some cool Y threes, and and uh, I like to wear these Rod Lavers. So I'm trying never. Part of quitting law was. To not wear ties and not wear shoes. So I'm you doing my best. Both. Yeah. I'm trying. Are you are you lacing them up these days or still untied? It depends on the it, you know it depends on the purpose. Obviously, tennis <laughs> they're tied. <laughs> Walking to Starbucks, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, favorite New York City restaurant or bar that you are not a partner in? Oh my goodness! I'm gonna say for a restaurant, I'm gonna say Odeon or Raoul's. Because I feel like they feel like real New York, as does Barney Greengrass. But I don't know if people think of that as a restaurant. But take me there for locks and bagels. If you like Bialis. I'm, I'm as happy as you could be. Uh, and I think the coolest bar in New York for me is Attaboy, which used to be Milk and Honey, down on the Lower East Side. And we're actually, I'm pretty excited because I worked with those guys in Vegas. And we're doing 
two projects with them in New York. Um, but, you know, it's a 22-person bar on the Lower East Side. You wouldn't even know it was there. And probably the most innovative cocktails in New York, if not the country. Wow. Tough to get in. Uh, not if you know Brad Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that'll get you far. Um, all right. The, the trait or trait that you most value in a friend? Consistency. Um, you know, I mean, there's just... As we get older, I think, although what's been nice is that I, I recently have met some new people that and it's harder to do as we get older. As you know, our time is constrained and stuff. I've met some really interesting, cool new people with the, all the openings in the last year that I think will become longtime friends. But there's a certain ease and comfort. You know, I'm still in touch, as I think you are, because I know a lot of your old friends with people I went to middle school or you know at that time we called it junior high and um especially during the pandemic there's been a lot of comfort in those old friendships and that level of trust that you have with people that even if you're razzing each other it's all done with with love and and respect you know it's true isn't it it really is that comfort zone man is irreplaceable irreplaceable and funny i mean you know people pull stuff out you're like how do you even remember that (laughs) (laughs) all right um Speaking of memories, your fondest childhood memory around food. Fondest around food? You know, it's funny that I'm in this business, Brad, because I don't, you know, I was a, like a maybe Sarah Lee and, and Haagen-Dazs. I don't know. I mean, you know, my dad, I, my fondest memory would really probably be my dad doing barbecues in the backyard because that meant we got to have a catch in between him flipping the burgers or flipping the steaks. So I have extremely clear memories of being in our backyard in Syosset doing, you know, Saturday or Sunday barbecue and and having a catch with my dad. So, you know, not glamorous food, but certainly one of my warmest and strongest memories. Yeah, man, uh, I can relate to that. A catch with dad is uh, the best. That's why I can't watch. So I can't watch Field of Dreams. I mean, I, I, it's an auto auto cry. Can't get through it. (laughs) Auto cry. Dad, you want to have a catch? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sports legends. Uh, Who, past or present, would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? uh, I would say I would say it would have to be Muhammad Ali. Um, Just the more I learn about him and, you know, the, the. the, you know, the more I, I watch archival footage and stuff and the, and the things he said, uh, I think I'd, I'd most want to sit with him. I mean, my the, my other, you know, sort of hero growing up was were my dad's hero. So it was like Willie Mays, people like that. But Sandy Koufax. But yeah, for me, I think it would probably be probably be Ali. I did get the kick of meeting one of my childhood heroes in person for a moment when I got to meet Joe Namath which was completely surreal because when I was eight, he won the Super Bowl, and then I randomly met him here on the Upper West Side. But I'll stick with Ali. That's a good one. So when you met Joe Willie, did you did you just walk up to him on Amsterdam Avenue and say, hi, I'm uh, David Raven? <laughs> well, you know I would, you know I would normally do that, that, that dumb shit. Right. right. No, I would. But, no, it was actually it was the most perfect way to meet somebody. Uh, Danny Erico, who was the owner and original – founder and owner of Equinox, he, you know, we used to play touch football in Central Park back in the 80s and 90s. And um, so he knew I loved Namath. And uh, and I was walking down Amsterdam and he's like, yo, Raven, come over here. So I walked across the street and there's some 
you know, I really didn't even notice he's standing near some tall, stooped guy with a bike helmet on, you know, athletic looking guy. And I'm like, what's up, Danny? What do you need? And he's like, I just wanted you to meet my friend Joe here. And I turn around. And there's a guy with sunglasses and a bike hat, bike, bike helmet. I'm like, hi, I'm David. He's like, hi, I'm Joe. And I'm like, Mr. Namath, I like completely. <laughs> I just and he's like, no, 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 it's Joe. I'm like, yeah, you don't understand. I still have your autograph when I was eight, you know, from Hofstra. Right. It was, I, it was not. Never I was heard not that before. I was not at my coolest. I was, no. <laughs> Tough to be. They're, they're used my, to that, though. Not so. at my coolest. Yeah. Well, David, thank you so much, man, for, for taking the time today. I'm, I'm really honored that you're not doing this podcast from the elliptical machine at Equinox. So <laughs> thank you for your undivided uh, attention. Of course, here. sir. So while we have you, we'll, we'll move right into it. Um, you know, the past this past year and a half, man, has been brutal in so many ways. And we've seen so much that, uh, you know, maybe just was was brought to the surface as a result of things going on. But certainly COVID and the, the havoc that it that it caused. And a lot of New Yorkers fled. At least that's what the newspapers say. And the streets certainly looked quiet. Um, the city looked dire for a little while there. And I know we talked quite a bit during and, uh, you know, it was it was touch and go. It was, you know, you were riding the subways and, and riding your bike around the city a lot. And the city did not look like the city that we know. So I'm, I'm curious with um, and I know you had several projects pending and, and things had to be put on hold, you know, during 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 uh, the pandemic. But did you ever consider leaving the city? Was that ever oh, a consideration God, oh, for you? God, no. I mean, a thousand percent not, but for two reasons. I mean, one, one just, it's, you know, I don't know how you did it, but once it gets in your DNA, it's kind of in your DNA um, for me. So mm -hmm. I've left for short periods of time and not been happy. I mean, I've been happy in that moment, but knowing that I was definitely going back to New York. Um, but also our, our business is not transportable. So, you know, whatever, whatever street cred or, you know, uh, abilities. I like, I'm not a chef. I don't have a transportable skill. Um, my skill set is who I know and our history here in New York and our ability to create a bit of a buzz and to have credibility. And, you know, if I picked up and went to Phoenix or some other city, um, that might not trail me. And plus there's a lot of people in the similar position in those cities, you know, who've already established those 20, 30 year relationships. Um, so it was never really a consideration. And also, I just never really doubted that New York was going to come back. I mean, it was it, it you, everything you said is accurate. It was felt very dire. It felt like a, a bad like one of those Will Smith that I can't think of the name of it, the Will Smith movie. When you like look around, and there's zero people here. It was crazy riding a bike through Times Square a year ago. Um, but, you know, it's funny, not funny, but interesting, like depending on what part of town you're in. Even last summer, even when COVID was still raging, you know, there were in the West Village where we have American Bar or I, I met someone for dinner in Soho and then we, wa we walked down Spring Street and I was kind of like, what's going on? I mean, when, when people were outdoors at only at the time. So I think there was a tremendous amount of pent up demand then and now we're seeing incredible demand. Um, I think a lot of people our age are not in the city and are coming back in September. But I think people who were in a younger demographic uh, who didn't necessarily have the means to just leave and go live in a second house in the Hamptons or, or somewhere are here and, and have been going pretty strong. Yeah. You know, when I thought about that question, David, asking you that, I 
of course, reflected back to, you know, my decision to leave to leave the city in 89. And it was, you know, after a, a rough period in New York, you know, with, with crack and crime yeah, and, yeah. you know, the economy was, you know, was ish and, and, you know, it was a rough time. And I and I just needed the space. I was ready for um, some warm weather. But New York never you, you don't get New York out of your bones, I think, ever. And I still, you know, consider it my hometown. I the keep trying to get you to come back, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need you help around one of your I need rooms. help. Yeah. I need help. <laughs> you need, I bet you do. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, man, you started to, to kind of answer this question, but I want to go a little bit deeper with it. So you've opened several places, which I want to get into in a little bit more detail in a couple of minutes. But I, I'm just I'm, I'm really curious what kind of energy you're feeling from people coming out now. Or are folks just really pent up as the, the demand just through the roof? Whatever you're whatever you're reading, it's more, um, it, you know, it's I mean, at Jimmy this past weekend, you know, which was our, our rooftop pool thing you know it was finally the weather finally broke it wasn't humid it wasn't pouring rain and you would you would not know that a thing had happened i mean no one you know everyone is just congregating and having fun and smiling and beaming and dancing around and uh i think there's a tremendous sense of relief and look new york's in a better place than a lot of other places still in america and certainly in europe i mean we're over 70 percent, i think now mm-hmm. vaccinated and people are behaving as such um especially in Manhattan, especially in the venues that we have, I think, uh, you know, uh, I mean, all our places are full and no one seems to be concerned. And it's 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 nice to see after a year of being afraid to get in an elevator with somebody, um, you know, because, again, that's another thing that people out in other, you know, we are so confined here, as you know, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, every, you know, our building has one elevator. So you mm-hmm. pretty much no choice. You're going to be in an elevator with somebody, you know, the, the subways were a little dicey um, a few months ago mm-hmm. until I felt like I was double vaccinated. But right now, yeah, I think that there's kind of a, a, a pent up energy and um, that I've never witnessed really. Wow. Wow. So, I, and I know that there have been some hiring challenges in major oh, markets, that's, LA, New that's York. Really that, an understatement. That's really like, that, that be Has the that dissipated at all, David, or no, it's still it's, really it's dealing terrible. with it? It's terrible. It's terrible. And it's funny because, not to get too deep on this, but you know, I'm a New York Times lover, but even yesterday, they, you know, just their bias, you know, that it's only conservatives who think that, um, that the, you know, uh, this extra stipend is um, hurting. Employ, uh, getting hiring back, but it's not. Just, it's everyone I know in the restaurant business, liberal blue Democrat like me, or conservative whatever like some of my friends. Uh, no Trumpers in that group, but um, but we're all having the same issue. You know, you can't hire anybody because mm-hmm. a lot of people left. You know, I mean, imagine imagine three young actresses living together in Brooklyn, and one loses their job a year ago and, and says, "I got to go home to my parents." Well, then that's a domino effect. The other two now can't afford the apartment because they were splitting it three ways, so they all had to leave. Sure. And uh, you know, we have people who have straight up told me, "You know, look, I'm making eight what eight hundred something a week. Plus, I'm teaching you know eight yoga classes a week privately, and I don't have to get in the subway, and I'm not coming back to work till I need to come back to work." Mm-hmm. And it's logical. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some people. So yeah, it's been really hard. And, you know, when you get John George, who's, you know, the king of hospitality, basically, and one of the nicest guys, when he's having to throw out $500 bonuses to get people to come work, groups like ours, which are 
you know, it's not like Lambs Club, which has been around 11 years. A lot of these venues are new. We got all our staff back at Jimmy, no problem. But some mm-hmm. of the new restaurants, uh, Sona, we hired probably just before the real crisis hit. But so many restaurants opened in the last four or five weeks, I'd say, either new ones or ones that were just kind of waiting it out a little longer. Um, they all opened at once. And so now we're all, we're at a $1,000 uh, offer for a signing bonus if you stay through September. Wow. It's crazy. You know, David, I've talked about this uh, a few times on this program with other folks in the industry because we we experienced this this employee shortage in L.A., you know, years ago. I mean, this this is not new. It got certainly accelerated uh, as a result of COVID and the pandemic, but it's not a new condition. At least it was not in Los Angeles. We had a hard time finding folks. Mm-hmm. Um do you do you see any long term consequence here? Is there some model adjustment that needs to be made? Is is or, or you think this is a just over time it will it will correct itself and more people will be in the market looking for work? I mean, I remember when you were telling me you were having a hard time and it was so interesting because it was something I had never even heard of. You, you said you were losing people to Uber, you know, because they were actors auditioning and they could just turn the clock on and off in between auditions rather than commit to an eight hour shift. That's not as much of a New York phenomenon because there, you know, not as many people have cars. Everyone in LA has a car, you know, mm-hmm. but the average 24 year old living in Brooklyn trying to be an actor is not, doesn't have a car. They're, they're riding the subways. I do believe, and again, this could be foolish, but I believe as, as Broadway returns in the fall uh, and as film production and TV production gets back to full steam, that a lot of those younger people who are either behind the camera or in front of the camera or hoping to be behind the camera or in front of the camera are going to come back to New York. And they're traditionally who who work in our industry, mm-hmm. as you know. And they're just, everything shut down, right? I mean, which is why we don't have Lambs Club open right now or Skylark, because there's no one in Midtown. You know, in reference to what you, we were speaking about earlier, you know, if you go below 23rd Street, New York looks normal. Or if you come up here on my neighborhood on the Upper West Side, your neighborhood on the Upper West Side, you would think nothing had ever happened. But if you go to 44th and Broadway at, at you know, a certain hour of night, it's deserted, you know, or it's, a, it's just a different guest because there's, there's no one going to theater. There's no business guys coming out of those, those uh, skyscrapers. So, yeah, no, I do think it'll come back, but I think it need, you know, I, I think that bigger brains than mine need to get together and figure out how to incentivize younger people to come back here sooner and fill these jobs. Well, I know there's an election. By the time this program airs, uh, it will have been decided, but uh, it has not happened yet. And I do want to get your thoughts on that in a couple of minutes. But relative to the New York Times, there was an article, I think this um, this past Sunday, just about the youth movement in New York and, and how many young folks now are kind of realizing for the first time that they can possibly afford an apartment in Manhattan that they could not afford prior. And even um, enrollment in uh, local universities is up. Columbia is up over 50 percent. NYU is up over 20 percent. Supposedly, commercial rents are reflecting, you know, some stagnation, if not a little bit of a dip, which is, you know, something we have not seen um, ever, probably. And, you know, that that suggests that maybe there's going to be this revitalization through this youth movement of, you know, this is their first go around, right? We were our first go around, maybe, you know, both of us are a little bit, I'm a little older than you, but we're both probably too young to really remember Studio 54 and its heyday. But certainly we followed, you know, our, you know, our nightlife. We we missed that even though, but Will was like 17 and going, you know. Right. Well, Will, of course. Of course. (laughs) 
every rope drop for Will Regan. Every rope um, drop for Will yeah. Regan. But, uh, you know, places like Nell's, you know, kind of defined our era of nightlife, yes. right? Yes. And then, you know, you, as I mentioned, you and Will opened Rex. Um, I moved out west, did Roxbury. And so that was our time. So, you know, in, in what's happened in the 20 years or so in between then and where we are now has, you know, has certainly uh, been interesting to watch the restaurant industry proliferate and celebrity chefs and, and mm-hmm. you know, all these concepts and, and the growth that we've watched. But now we see, you know, the youth movement, if, if there mm-hmm. truly is one. Do you think that that's real, David? Are you seeing uh, young people I, in that kind I, of number? I think it is real because of exactly what you spoke about. And I think there's a potential, you know, nightlife kind of got, I mean, look, there's a lot of factors that have hurt nightlife, whether it's the festivalization of, of America, you know, like every week there's something, right? Coachella, Lollapalooza, you know, so I think I think a lot of people's focus turned to not necessarily being in nightlife in New York because they were so busy running around the country going to whatever sort of uh, event floated their boat. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you think back to Aria, which was really a groundbreaking club that that Surge did with Eric, you know, that could never happen. Serge Becker, Eric Good. Eric Good, yep. right. That, mm-hmm. But that could never have happened in the last 10 years because mm-hmm. rents in Manhattan were so insane. But when they went to Tribeca... 25 years ago and or 30 years ago and did area, you know, and were so creative and so cutting edge, um, they probably were paying $10 a square foot or something. True. So yeah. the question is, you know, are landlords going to be stuck with these uh, large scale spaces that don't really have another use and make deals? And I mm-hmm. think they will. And we'll create a few. You know, it's funny, about 10, 12 years ago, Steve Lewis, who's sort of a legendary nightlife operator under Peter Gation. And now then he became a, a designed a lot of clubs. Um, and he used to have a column called Good Night, Mr. Lewis in Black Book, I think it was. And he said the new VIP is any jerk off at, at Morgan Stanley with a black card. And I thought he was ahead of his. You know, I, I wasn't sure I agreed with him. But over the next few years, I realized he really was seeing it in advance that, you know, the VIPs to us were artists or musicians or models or designers or actors or whatever it may be. Someone who was creating something, someone who was on the cutting edge of something that you wanted to learn from or be around or just hear what they had to say. And, you know, then it got all warped in the early 2000s. And, I, I, you know, it's a, you could argue which came first, chicken or egg. But I would argue that rents got so high that operators had to cater to, you know, guys making several million dollars a year who were willing to buy a table for 15 grand. They just didn't care because it really didn't matter because their bonus was $3 million. Um, and they'd buy a table and, and order, you know, 20 bottles of Belvedere or whatever it was. Hopefully this will take, you know, we never really went down that path. You know, we don't do bottles. I mean, we don't, we don't not allow bottle service, but we don't, we don't advertise bottle service at any of our venues, you know, mm-hmm. specifically because we didn't want to be that. We didn't think that provided for longevity. And yeah. um, that's got to be a, a tough, um, you know, decision because you're the, the, the staff that you have, if they can work down the street and earn five times as much because there's bottle service offered. You know, you want to keep that great cocktail server and not. lose. You know, them. I think, look, it's it was interesting when Lotus was at its peak. And then, of course, we suffered through 9-11 and we took a dip, uh, as did the whole city. You know, people were still going out to dinner, but they were not going dancing. It was not a celebratory mood for a long time. The city was very, you know, kind of in mourning and didn't really know when was it when was it OK to go have fun. You had to go eat a hamburger, but when was it okay to like have fun? And it took a while for Lotus to come back and knock on wood, we did. But a couple of years into that, a year or two after that, uh, Marquee opened and we lost about 10 of our best cocktail servers. 
but about six of them came back and it was just attitudinal. You know, there was like, some of them were just trying to make as much possible money in the shortest amount of hours they could and, and were willing to deal with any kind of customer that was willing to spend 10 grand on a table. And some of us, some of them wanted more of this sort of homey atmosphere, if you can have a homey atmosphere in a, in a nightclub. But I think it's funny, the Lotus Crew is a really interesting group. There's 20 or 30 of them that treated almost the way you and I might treat our college uh, roommates or buddies. You know, they still get together for each other's birthdays. It was a very family-like atmosphere for a large venue. And they, they go to each other's kids' birthdays and their aunts and uncles or their godmother and godfather to their, their... So a lot of them came back because they were like, yeah, I could make a little more money over there, but I'm so happy here and my friends are here. And I think we've been... It's harder as you get more places going to foster that, that family atmosphere. But I would say that, like, for example, my partner Manish at Sona uh, is just a wonderful guy. And... Um, you know, people, someone, someone said something to us the other day. I said, I, f- I feel like I'm kind of more the uncle there and he's the dad because, he, you know, I'm running around. I'm popping in for an hour here, an hour there because I'm on my, like, literally on a city bike running around Manhattan saying, you know, checking in at places. And that's the interesting thing about the pandemic you didn't ask about, which I'll tell you if you want to hear it in a mm-hmm. minute. But Please. I'm checking in on the places. And Manish is, like, there for four or five hours. And I can see the love that the staff have for him because he's there for them every night. And he's giving them a hug, hello, and he's... He's just, he's an amazing dude. And, um, you know, I miss, in some ways, I miss that aspect of when Will and I only had Lotus and we were kind of there every day and knew everyone's name, knew their wife's name, knew their mom's, you know, problems, whatever. We're not in that situation. But what I was going to say is what's, what's been hard for me, and it's a good problem to have, is the pandemic changed, and I don't know if it did it in other cities, but it changed people's eating habits. Everyone is eating earlier. At, and, um, you know, uh, New Yorkers were famous for being willing to eat at 9.30, 10 o'clock. That was no big, no big thing, right? 9.30 reservation, then go out wherever you're going out. I think a combination of first having to eat home every night, and then New York was a 10 o'clock curfew for so long um, that people didn't want to be rushed out before dessert. And they haven't really readjusted to the, the time change. So everyone is trying, people who you and I would think would want to eat at 8.30, 9 o'clock, whatever, they all want to eat between 6.30 and 8.00. So what it's done for me, oddly enough, is put me in this crazy time crunch where I'm trying to figure out, well, do I go to American Bar? Do I go to Sona? Do I go to Veranda? You know, how do I get between one and the other in a, in a short enough period of time that I can at least say hello to my friends who are in each place? So as I said, it's a good problem to have, but it's, it's, it's strange. It's phenomenal. I mean, I, when we were, as you mentioned, when we were doing in the Nell's days or whatever, I would go to dinner at this restaurant, Espas, that used to be on 16th Street at 9.30. We had a standing Thursday night reservation at 9.30 because we didn't want to be done till midnight because there was no sense. What were we going to do at 11? You know, you had to get be done at midnight so you could go to Nell's at 12.15. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see if that comes back. It'll be interesting. Yeah. Well, you're, you're definitely building up, you know, a nice network of uh, people to work with you, um, you know, in terms of partners that add real value. Um, but it does it does. You know, your, your point does make me think about, you know, one of the dilemmas of this business, because I know enough about you to know that, you know, you really are a, a people person and being in that room, not only just for the I think it, it gives you a certain amount of pleasure, of course, but the people that are going there, they want to see you, you know, they, they want to know that David, David's going to be there that night. But the, 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 the real life economic challenges of staying in one room as an operator, 
are just not, they're not favorable. <laughs> you know, you no. kind of have to have more than one revenue stream, right? And is that a dilemma for you or is it something that you I think readily it's both. embrace these days? No, no, I mean, I think it's both. I mean, you're right. In New York City, it, it's almost impossible to have one, you know, revenue source that you could just rely on, especially because if that one were to take a turn for the for for the bad and for some whatever combination of reasons, a, sh- a famous chef might leave or whatever it may be. If you have no backup, you have no backup. So um, and the places that we have are different enough that I'm able to I think it's fair. And I hope my partners, because they're not all the same partners, feel that it's fair that I I'm at one place one night, but I'm mentioning the other venues saying, you know, you should check out Veranda or you've been here at Sona three times. Come check out American Bar. And each place has a great on the ground partner. So mm-hmm. um, I, I, that's an advantage. Um, you know, I, what we learned when we did Union Bar, you know, is so funny because Will was so smart, you know, as you know, and, and it was sort of ahead of the curve. And, you know, at, at Rex, it was very dependent on he and I being there. And we got, you know, that that's a little gets tied up with your ego a little bit like, you, mm-hmm. you, you know, um, and then, of course, in Manhattan Express in Moscow, uh, we built this crazy business uh, in Russia in 1993 and four. But we came back and we did Union Bar. And for like three weeks, it had all the, the usual suspects coming. But it was a glass front bar on, on Park Avenue South. And our, our inner core guest stopped coming. But it was packed. And I said to Will one day, I said, wow, it's so weird. Like, you know, our friends aren't really coming here anymore. And he goes, are you kidding? He's the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, we don't have to be here. He wow. said, you know, yeah. he's like, we are not tied to this room. People don't really care if they find you or not. And, and, you know, then, you know, stupidly or not, we had our Godfather three moment and went back and did Lotus. Um, <laughs> Godfather. <laughs> and, you know, we got pulled back into it when we thought we were out. Uh, right, right. But, you know, I mean, obviously that led to a lot of great things for us. So I, I did zero regrets. Yeah. It was a wonderful time to do it. But, you know, some of our venues right now, um, I know everybody and some of them, look, I can walk into the Skylark on a, like you said about lambs, lunch mm-hmm. at lambs is people who come three times a week. And, you know, I, I know almost all of them by first name. I know their guests often. Um, so I can't wait for that to get back open. But the Skylark, which is five blocks away, on a nice Thursday, we'll see a thousand, literally a thousand people through the door on a nice spring Thursday. And I might know 10, you know, they're, they're there because it's a great venue on a, you know, on a, on a nice block with insane views. And we did a nice job on the build out and amazing cocktails. And they're not really worried about David Raven. They may not know who I am at all. And that's, mm-hmm. that's fine. That's you know, I'll, I'll, well, I'll one, put that I on wanna, the shelf. It's I good. Segue to your, to your operating model, David, because it's, it's really evolved over the time that I've, that I've watched you in this industry. Um, you know, and, and from the early days, obviously, with you and Will just kind of bootstrapping and learning the business real time and, and making adjustments along the way to what you've kind of created for yourself as an operating model now, where, you know, you've surrounded yourself with the Jeff Kadish's of the world. And, and Kyle, I think, is, is your partner in uh, America. They're both great. Yeah, right. Kyle and Jeff both are great. great. Yep. Bring a lot to the table. Yep. Um, you know, but you you don't really fit like the typical restaurateur, you know, model. You've kind of expanded it and morphed it into your own version of, you know, what I think you do exceptionally well is curate an experience, you know. And I guess restaurateurs do that as well. But I don't know, does, does any of that land for you? It feels a little more unique than, than what I would think of as the traditional definition of restaurateur. When Will decided in 
2000, I mean, you know, we were married at the hip, basically, you know, having gone to college together and then done all these things together. And when he decided in 2012 about to leave the business, you know, sort of half my brain exited the room along with him. Uh, in terms of, I mean, Will was a Wall Street trader, very successful one. His brain just works in numbers faster than anyone I've ever met. Um, he's great on construction. He's great on understanding build outs, uh, a lot of stuff that I'm not great at. And so I sort of got forced into uh, improvising and making alliances that seemed to fit um, whatever the right project was. And then just by great happenstance, you know, J Jimmy was, you know, knock on wood, extremely successful. And and the owner of the building where the Skylark is approached me just as a friend of a friend to take a look at it. That morphed from an initial just conversation where I thought that his business model or the business model of his potential operator was off base into him offering me the space. And one of the things I said in the meeting was I wouldn't even open on weekends. And he's like, you know, he was kind of completely like, what? And I said, yeah, this is such an amazing venue and Midtown is empty on weekends. I would do it as an event space. and. When he called me back a few days later after he had digested everything, um, he said, look, I just met a guy named Jim Kirsch, son of Abigail Kirsch, which is, you know, arguably the best catering and event company in New York. Would you consider chatting with him and maybe doing a JV? And Jim is amazing. And, uh, you know, his company's amazing. And we formed this uh, joint venture to do, you know, me sort of handling the bar lounge sort of side of things and him handling all the events. And they do all the back of house, which is what I was missing once Will you know, left the business. I had no one to turn to for HR, accounting, mm -hmm. all those issues. Mm -hmm. And so it's become such a fruitful partnership that now they're my partners at at Modern House in both Veranda and Jimmy. And we're prospectively doing two to three more projects together. So a lot of it's happy accident, you know, and mm -hmm. if anything, you know, uh, one of the lessons is go to the meeting, you know, for me, uh, because I only walked over from Lambs Club to the Skylark build out site because a mutual friend sort of asked me, please, my friend is building this rooftop and he's getting a little nervous. And he just wants someone else to eyeball it. I'm like, uh, the, the friend was such a good friend of mine that I said, sure, I'm happy to go talk to him for a few minutes. Having no idea that it was going to lead to, you know, one of the most important things that, you know, for my personal portfolio in terms of it's, you know, the Skylark itself and then what it's led to in terms of a partnership. You know, I, I really admire your your instinct, David, and and your intellect. You know, you you're a humble guy, but uh, you're you're clearly really intelligent. You're one of the smartest guys I know. But you're you're also able to apply a certain sense of aesthetic, um, both where it, when it comes to design, um, the, the 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 right concept for the right space and the right people for the right venue. And I think it's a really unique skill set to to have those things blend together so effortlessly as they seem to do for you do you Thank feel you. like you're 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 i mean you've got to feel like you're kind of in that sweet spot right now where things are things are really clicking and and your talents really i think are are being showcased um it's a it's a strange i mean going from a year ago where i was sitting on the couch wondering if we we're ever really going to work again to um to, really was. Yeah, I mean, right. not, you know, to, to now having these places that are all, you know, quite beautiful and all doing really, really well. Um, and I hope that continues is gratifying. Um, you know, I think what I've been able to do is identify talent who led to other talent in the sense that I asked around a lot as Will was leaving the business and some of the partners from Lotus were leaving New York. To, and I found 
some, a lot of people point to me in the direction of Kyle, who's got an amazing aesthetic sense, far superior to mine. And he located a designer that we've now used both on American Bar, but then I was you, I, I suggested her for Sona and for Veranda, and she just knocked it out of the park. Um, you know, one of my favorite places that we ever did uh, was the Double Seven, which was this beautiful small cocktail bar across the street from Lotus. And um, it's funny, I was in LA probably visiting you, which was one of my favorite things to do, and until you left me for, for Florida. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and every place we went to around that time was designed by, it seemed to be designed by this guy, Dodd Mitchell. Right. Um, and I was like, I gotta find this guy. <laughs> Because um, there's nothing that feels like this in, in New York at the time. I think one, the one I liked the most was called Dolce. Mm -hmm. And there was just a vibe to it that I was like, no one's doing this in New York. And luckily, my friend Teresa knew him very well. You know Teresa. And she, because he wasn't calling me back. <laughs> and she said, I know Dodd. He'll call me. And sure enough, you know, you know, one thing led to another. He designed the double seven. We teamed up with. And yeah, like that. That's a good example. I mean, you know, uh, I'm not good on compliments, but I'll accept the compliment in that case that I thought that, you know, bringing Dodd to New York for that. And then I had just recently met Sasha Petrasky, who really kind of brought classic cocktails back with milk and honey. And we had developed a nice rapport. And I was like, look, I think if it, with our crowd that Lotus had, that sort of, for lack of a better phrase, the Vogue-ish crowd of Lotus, if they saw a Dodd Mitchell design in a small, intimate environment with cocktails by Sasha, when these guys are used to just having cranberry and soda, um, or you know, cranberry and vodka, um, I think we'll blow people away. And 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 we did. It hadn't really been done, and that was sort of when we started this whole idea. Because people asked me, "Well, what is it?" And I I really wasn't sure what to call it, so I, I kind of said, "It's nightlife for grownups." Mm -hmm. And it was not meant as a chronological thing. It was just meant as a mindset. I mean, you could be right. 24 or you could be 54. And you've, you've had a nice dinner and you, you want to go talk out to somebody and hear what right, you want to talk to somebody, but you want to hear that beat in the background. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll never forget when you, and it was quite an accident, but you walked Bill Withers in after he won some Lifetime Achievement Award. And our DJ happened to be playing uh, Lovely Day as he came down the hallway. And he's like, oh, you didn't have to do that for me. I'm like. Mr. Withers, we are so honored to have you here, but we didn't we didn't do it for you. That's what we play here. It was a rock and roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> that, yeah, and uh, that, that's what we that's what we play here. Um, and we're just so kind of freaked out that you're actually here. Um, but yeah, that was the vibe. Was like, how do you create a little head bopping moment, right. and, you know, for people? But they could hear their friends speak. And look, if they wanted to go to a big club, God bless. That wasn't what we were doing. And it was kind of the same mentality we did in in Vegas with the Dorsey. Was you know. When, when Rob Goldstein asked me to come out and look around Vegas, you know, I said, look, Rob, every hotel has these 5,000 person, you know, gigantic nightclubs with, with, you know, DJs that are making a couple hundred thousand to spin. No one's doing a cool, grown up, adult, sexy, you know, bar playing old school funk and soul and hip hop and classics and, and, and amazing cocktails. I think you could create something that no one else is doing. And, and he bought into it and the hotel bought into it. And, you know, the Dorsey was born and it's it's worked out so well. They did two more. Um, so, look, you got to you got to know what your lane is and kind of stay in it. And, you know, maybe you deviate a little bit. But my lane is certainly not doing any more these big giant nightclubs with people dancing on tables. Um, that was a period. But, you know, David, I want to before I want to walk through virtually anyway, the uh, the places that you have now 
<clears throat> as I mentioned, um, you know, they're getting a they, they're getting a claim. Sona just got a great review from uh, Pete Wells in The New York Times. But before I do that, you know, when I when I moved to L.A., there was there was a certain sense that I had that the New York rep meant, you know, that I was going to bring something that L.A. had not had at that time. And over the 30 years that I spent in Los Angeles and you spent a lot of time out there and a lot of time with me. And as you mentioned, you know, discovered Dodd Mitchell's work and saw other things that you like. Um, I saw where things now or, or had become interchangeable between New York and L.A. stylistically, aesthetically, um, concept wise. Did, am I do, would you agree with that? I mean, you I know your friends um, with people like Jeff Klein who are doing. Well, you know, I was just going to say bungalow like, is fantastic. I mean, I was just I was actually when you were saying that I was going to say, yeah, there's a lot of similarities. And then you get a guy with an amazing I was literally like as you're speaking, thinking and then you get someone like Jeff Klein who changes the, you know, changes the vibe in the sense that I still I, I like have a, a, a calling to Sunset Tower Bar when I'm there. I want to mm-hmm. eat a steak frit at the bar or if you're there. I want to sit down at a nice dark corner table with you and catch up uh, in this amazing room and realize, oh, shit, two tables away is a good friend of ours. And we didn't even notice because it's dim and it's cool and it's sexy. Mm-hmm. And and he's got the guy on the bass and the music's not overbearing at all. And then he goes and turns a former bathhouse into this beautiful, you know, private club. So like so his vision and his, the beauty that he and the, the, the time he puts into the design, mm-hmm. I think, is 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 so admirable. And, and, and uh, you know, I'm such a fan. Um, so I think there is crossover, but I also think people in New York are doing, I think this, our designer, Melissa Bowers, who's done a few projects for us, she was formerly, um, the, the design director for the Faena, which is, mm-hmm. you know, incredible in, mm-hmm. in Miami. And we were just dumb lucky that Kyle brought her into our mix. And then, you know, she had the time to do Sona and Veranda and she's, she's got her distinctive style, but she's varied it across and she's. She's redoing Temple Bar for us, which is, you know, a project we're super excited about for September. That's incredible. That's a legendary space. I can't oh wait. My God, so can't talk wait. talk to us a little bit about Sona, man. That I mean, what an incredible concept. The room, I've read where Pete Wells said, when you're in the dining room, you're bathed in this amazing light. I'm like, mm-hmm. David knows good lighting when he sees it. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like an incredible spot, man. I can't wait to see it. Just, just tell us a little bit about, uh, about Sona, Veranda, and uh, American Bar, if you would. Uh, do the quickie as best I can. Um, uh, Sona was really the, 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 came out of the brand of my partner, Manish Goyle, who was in the event marketing business, but his dad was the, had the first and only Indian restaurant in Texas, uh, in 1975. And Manish always wanted to sort of pay homage to his dad. And also he really wanted to make Indian food more culturally re- relevant in New York than he thought it was. Certainly there's some great Indian restaurants in New York, both on the high end and the low end. But Manish's dream and the way that when he approached me about it, which I thought was so relevant, was like, no one's really done for Indian food what Indochine did for for Asian food or what Nobu did many years ago for 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 uh, sushi or what, let's say, Cosmo ha- Cosme has done for Mexican food, which is make it sort of, for lack of a better phrase, chic and feel New York and feel like a, a, a cool night out in addition to having incredible cuisine. And... I think we've accomplished that. I mean, the room is beautiful. Melissa did an incredible job. Priyanka helped a lot, to be honest, with with um, sort of a vibe and a muse, sort of as our muse with it. It's Priyanka and Chopra. Is it, it is. You know. 
who's a good friend of Manish's. And I, I've become friendly with her, but I don't want to take credit for that. Manish brought her in. They're very close friends. In fact, her husband, Nick Jonas, named Sona over lunch. Uh, it means beautiful in, um, uh, in Punjabi and, and gold in, in Hindi. Mm-hmm. And it was a perfect name. Uh, it's, you know, even if you didn't know what, it, the, what the background was, Sona just it sounds right. It looks right. It looks great in graphics. So the food is tremendous by this wonderful guy named, a very humble guy named Hari Nayak. And everyone else in the kitchen is really right off the boat from India and living in Jersey City uh, as of February. So um, it's really a wonderful place. And I've learned a lot as a, as, you know, Upper West Side Jew eating uh, burgers and bagels and locks. I'm starting to eat Indian food a lot more and it's, it's delicious um, and, and really woke me up to a whole new sort of flavor palette that I didn't have. Um, Veranda's with a very well-known chef named George Mendez, a Michelin-starred chef who's used to have a Portuguese restaurant for 10 years called Aldea. And he just as you would understand, got tired of the grind of running his own restaurant by himself. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very successful, but mm-hmm. he was, it was a small restaurant and it required him to do everything. And he was like, look, I just want to cook again. I want to cook, visit my tables, go home to my family. I don't want to worry about the plumbing or the HR. And so we were able to provide him that. And the, the sits from Floor Equity who bought the James and turned it into Modern House really just went over the top with this build out because the whole restaurant is under this removable glass pergola. Um, so we can be a completely indoor outdoor restaurant at the touch of a button, really. Um, and then American Bar is in many ways uh, sort of an homage to, to Jeff Klein and Sunset Tower Bar and to Ralph Lauren and Polo Bar. And, um, you know, Kyle and I, you know, uh, always just loved Sunset Tower and loved Polo Bar and thought that there was nothing really in the village that had all those dishes that you just love. And, you know, you might find one or two of them at a restaurant, but you've never been presented with all 12 of them or all 18 of them right in front of you. And, and it's the kind of place you could almost eat every night. And we have a few people who eat four nights a week at American Bar and God bless them. And then we got Jimmy back open, which is great because being that it's 60% outdoor space, um, people feel really good about being up there. And we, you know, for me, you know, I get a kick out of it because, you know, really interesting people have been coming up lately and, you know, bad name drop alert because he's, this has been his week, but Anthony Ramos came up twice in the last week, you know, before and after the premiere of In the Heights. And mm-hmm. he's I such know a, Idris has spun there. Idris before, has right? spun there. Yeah, that was kind of surreal when his friend asked me if he could spin there. And I kind of look at my phone like, you, you don't mean Idris Elba, right? Like we, we can't afford Idris Elba. And, and she said, no, no, he, he just likes to spin, you know, to sort of take the edge off when he's doing multiple interviews. And, and he's now done it like four or five times. He's fantastic and nicest guy. And, and you'll appreciate, appreciate this because of Bryce and how we both feel about our sons. The last time he was in, he was actually, it was a crowded party and he was so far away. I, I couldn't even really get to him without having to step over 40 people. And he just kind of waved and I waved. I don't know him well, but we waved it. And I could see him mouth mouth to me. How's your son? Cause he had met wow. Tyler. And I mean, you know, like what kind of dude is that? Right? Like right. Big, one of these big movie stars doesn't know me from a hole in the wall. And the first words out of his mouth are, how's your son doing? And I was like, this dude is too much. So um, yeah, it's, it's very rewarding. And Tyler is pretty memorable. He's a good dude. He's a great kid. I don't know if he enjoyed being home from college this much, but I certainly enjoyed having him around. 
Well, you know, on that note, David, I want to just quickly before we run out of time, a couple of things left here. But um, I did want to mention that, you know, you have what we call these days a blended family. Your your wife is Nikki. She's beautiful and old friend. She happens to be African-American. Tyler is a mix of you both. A beautiful, beautiful young man and as smart as he can be. He's an incredible writer. And I think he's going to do some pretty, pretty cool stuff. But this has always seemed to come natural to you. Diversity was not anything that you seemed to have to be told about or taught about. Just seems innate in your character. Um, your friends, you've got the most diverse palette of friends of anyone that I know. You, you know, you're, as I mentioned before, you're an amazing social connector. But all of this just seems, you know, just really natural to you. There's nothing forced. Your places are always fully representative of the, of a diverse spectrum, gay, straight, black, white, yellow. Purple. I'm not happy. Well, two things, um, three things. Thanks, because it is very important to me, but it's not deliberate or intentional. It's just how you're right. It's just been my whole life because I think a big part of it is my parents, because my dad went to a Quaker college and uh, had two, two lifelong friends, one of whom has since passed away, but one was a Quaker guy who had grown up in Pennsylvania, and the other was uh, a, a black guy named Ed Lee, who I knew from the moment I was born. He and his wife and his kids, who were pretty much my age, and they were just always at our house. And so it just never even, I actually thought Ed was my uncle, you know, until I was three or four, because he was there so much. And like, we call each other uncle fooling around. And I really do feel that way, obviously, as does Tyler and I hope does Bryce. But I really did think Ed Lee was my uncle until my parents explained that he wasn't. But he was there so much in my life. Um, and my parents were involved in the civil rights movement in Long Island where we, you know, as people would move to neighborhoods that were traditionally white neighborhoods and get some guff for it. My parents would, you know, try to help. And it just was always part of my life. And meeting Nikki was certainly never intentional. It was just the social circle we were in is, you, you you know, we could each name the 50, 60 people that were in our circle when we were single and moving around New York. It was a very diverse uh, group of people who no one really seemed to care at all about race or background or anything, sexuality even, no one cared about any of that stuff. And it's very rewarding um, to see that Tyler's generation could care less than we cared. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and Tyler, yeah, I mean, Nikki's half Filipino, half black. So Tyler's truly a mutt. He's got everything in him and um, his friends the same. Uh, and it's, it's kind of wonderful, but you're, you're right. I don't, I am not happy and our managers know it. I'm not happy when I walk into any one of our places is it's too much of anything. Right. Um, I think that our place's strength is the reflective of the, when they're reflective of the diversity of New York. And if I walk in, it doesn't matter if it's all white, wrong, if it's all black, wrong, if it's all gay, wrong, if it's all straight, wrong, it's got to feel like the melting pot that is New York. Otherwise, it's not interesting to me. Yeah, and I and I think, you know, any any place and I'm sure that a hotel group is going to come knocking soon. But uh, if they haven't already. But, you know, any place that gets David Raven, that's what you bring your your car core audience, as you described, you know, that that I was part of and continue to be part of from from the 80s has grown into this network of people that you know, are doing some amazing things and cross section racially, gender. It's 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 really beautiful, man. And I and I love it. And I look forward to, you know, of course, seeing you every time I'm in the city or when you come to L.A. 
But uh, I also really, really enjoy being in the spaces that uh, that you create. So Uncle Adam Katz and I will have to uh, drop in on you uh, next time. Next time in New York, you mentioned a couple of places that you have coming up. You're redoing Temple Bar. Tell us about uh, what's exciting. what's on the horizon and how you found more days and hours in a week. To do uh, even more. <laughs> I don't think I have more days and hours. And as you know, I'm trying to do stuff in your old uh, town as well on, in a completely different vein. So I'm trying to save some time for that as well. But Temple Bar was just one of those, you know, one of those moments that something comes along and you can't not do it. Um, you know, for those people who don't know it, it's a it was a small you know, people call it, consider it almost a downtown Bemelman's or um, it's this beautiful 75 person uh, bar that never had a sign ever, just had a crocodile uh, cut out on the front. It's on Lafayette, just near uh, Bleecker. It was behind a restaurant called NoHo Star. And the owner uh, passed away of old age, I don't know, I think in his 80s a few years ago. And as we were hunting for Sona or for a space that would, would handle the Indian restaurant, a broker said, well, you know, also, just just want to mention Temple Bar's available. We were like, what? And so, as I mentioned earlier, um, I had gotten lucky in Vegas and met with, you know, took me all the way in Vegas to meet um, the mentees of Sasha, if you will, uh, uh, Sam Ross and, and Michael from Attaboy. And um, when Manish and I stumbled across Temple Bar, I said, look, if we really want to do this next level and not just fake it, um, you know, as great a place as it is, it'll be even greater if we have the guys who run the top five bar every year in the world as our partners. And he, he was all into that because they're great guys. And he was waiting. To, so we hope, look, as you know, Brad, you know, the alchemy on paper always sounds good. You never know until you shake it up and deliver it to the people and they tell you, yeah, this is great. Or no, this really kind of sucks. Like you just don't know. We're not going to do a major revamp. We're going to clean everything up and you know, new furniture, new rugs, but, and then have this amazing team and hopefully New York will be ready for it. We're actually going to hold it. It could open in, in August. Um, but as you know, August is not a strong month to open in New York. So we're going to hold it till September, uh, when we think people will be hopefully, you know, really coming back to New York. And maybe that. fashion week returns. Fashion week. There's the U S open. September's a weird month in New York, as you know, because it's a deceptively great month. Like it looks like it's going to be great. And then the Jewish holidays hit and a lot of people, you know, go back underground basically. So it's really October when New York is in full, full force, but you get a good 10 day burst there between the tail end of the U S open and, and fashion week. And I think fashion week is probably going to have a lot of pent up demand as well. Cause they've been sort of not being, they've had to do it all virtually for a year and a half. So I think they're going to come out hard this year. Right. Speaking so. of fashion, I've been watching a few episodes of Halston on uh, Netflix and it helped me to revisit the. Well, I, I didn't I wasn't there in those days, but see Studio 54 in, in the early days and just the excess and, and you know, the, the, the craziness that uh, that was going on. then. But, you know, David, I, I think you are certainly emerging as I know you consider yourself a team player and I think you are a great teammate. But I think you are emerging as one of the the best operators in the country. And um, I'm really looking forward to continue to watch you grow and develop and and visit the places that uh, that you have coming online. And uh, I would encourage anybody that listens to this podcast when they visit New York to hit David's spots. I guarantee you we have not misrepresented (laughs) here (laughs) everything we say you will experience and enjoy. So. 
Anyway, David, it's been great to see you. Great talking to you, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. Did I miss anything? Anything you need to tell us? Yeah, I think you covered it all. Just I'm so pleased to to spend time with you, even if it's uh, with headphones on. I I, I can't wait to see you in person. It's been way, way too long. Yeah, me too, man. Way too long. Thanks so much, David. Take care. All right, Uncle Brad. Talk to you soon. See you soon. So here we are at this part of the program called How We Move with my dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz. So David Rabin is getting some stuff done in New York City as the city starts to emerge and come back. David is leading the charge for uh, for nightlife. Love that guy. Generous, uh, insightful, bright. Yeah. What do you what, what was your take? Well, I'm not surprised, though. I, you know, as long as I've known David Rabin and I know him mostly through you um, a couple of decades ago in restaurants in and out and around, always a kind of um, paradigm shifter. But what was most significant to hear as we're all maturing and aging and everyone gets to reflect is that he has a really special operating model and it always includes people. You know, um, and that's what's important. I think that's what we're getting to getting a chance to hear about um, with leaders in the industry in this last year. That it's not just about the brick and mortar; it's about all the souls that come in and out, and his role in that context. And so, the social impact hospitality space is really important. And it's not even where one starts; it's not even what you thought you were going into. But it does speak to the person he is. You know, um, and I have found that when you're reading various headlines, hospitality and social impact managers become one of the points of HR or the hiring process. And another one I saw was sustainability in hospitality, why it's important and how industry leaders can help. This is where we are. So now it goes back to what we talked about earlier some time back where hospitality is not just business, it's the way Mm -hmm. of life. It's the courtesy, it's the consideration. And what I'm really proud about in my grandmother's country of Grenada, there's a young brother named Barry Collymore, who has become the new board chair for the Grenada Tourism Authority and the founder of the West Indies School of Hospitality, which the acronym is WISH. And if you go online, you go to wish.com and they've done an um, an alliance with a number of donors, one a prominent resort owner there in um, Grenada from from Egypt he is. But they have now over 5,000 scholarships for potential and existing employees in in hospitality for an e-commerce course with um, Cornell. Wow. Wow. Cornell University, 5,000. So I had a brief conversation and I keep reading about it, hearing about it. We're going to do a deep dive in a minute. But I love the fact that he's involved, that he's in charge and that he's sharing and he's connecting dots and he's making sure people in and around him are empowered. And you have to be empowered with a little bit more engagement with the academic, with the certification, with the training and how it impacts the population. Mm-hmm. Really wonderful. Interesting because, you know, there's a, as we've heard a few of the uh, the operators, hospitality operators and chefs that we've had on the show, you know, there's been a real hiring challenge going on um, domestically, you know, just having a hard time. A lot of people left the field 
and uh, have not come back yet. And there's a real worker shortage. So, you know, uh, uh, any kind of a training program, you know, be it in the islands or wherever, uh, it would be nice to maybe make some connections with uh, that gentleman and some of the recruiters here in the States, because there are a lot of jobs right now that the hospitality industry needs to fill. And the service industry is really very, very key. So I would just, uh, just like um, other ways that we're able to refer people online, just go to wishgrenada.com. And that's the West Indies School of Hospitality. And I'm really proud of them because in short time, this is the movement that he is assuring and that other people are also the beneficiaries of such as the Spice Island. The Spice Island. (laughs) That's exactly. And for real, right? So it's not just on your palate. It's the thing that, you know, you can ply topically. I've given you some of that. That nutmeg. Yeah, that nutmeg. It not just smells great. It actually works. It soothes the muscle. It actually works. Well, you know, we actually have tried it. And every now and then you go, well, is that a placebo? Am I thinking it's working? But it's actually working. As long as the net result is the same, I don't care. Right. That's right. That's Ambassador right. Shabazz, how we move, just like that. Thank you. Just like that. Thank I'll you. I'll see you soon. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.